Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapies. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, one of the other co-founders of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm excited to welcome James Mackay, founder, president, and CEO at Aristea Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, James. My pleasure, Raul. Thanks for inviting me. So James, to kick us off, we'd love to learn more about your background, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Yes, happy to do that, Raul. So as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally from the UK, from Scotland. Grew up in the north of Scotland, uh, studied uh, genetics and medical genetics, and then actually went to Canada to do a postdoctoral fellowship. After that, came back to the UK, um, joined AstraZeneca, or the predecessor company of that, Imperial Chemical Industries. I ended up working for AstraZeneca for nearly 30 years. First 10 years was actually in the agrochemical side of the business. And then I moved over into pharmaceuticals, led the clinical team that took Seroquel, our drug for schizophrenia and depression, through to approval, and then held various senior project leader portfolio management positions in clinical development, ultimately responsible for managing all of AstraZeneca's clinical outsourced activity worldwide across the portfolio. I moved across to the U.S. in 2010 to head up the diabetes collaboration with Bristol-Myers Squibb. And then I led the AstraZeneca team that acquired another biotech here in San Diego, where I'm now based, called Ardea Biosciences, that was focused on development of treatments for gout. And I came to San Diego to take over the CEO role of that organization, which I did for five years. And then AstraZeneca decided to exit that therapy area, inflammation, and also exit primary care. So as that was our focus, we ended up licensing out those products that we got approved and closing that organization down about three and a half years ago. And that was the stimulus then for me to say, you know, it's time after a great career at AstraZeneca to move on, do something else, and decided it was time to set up a biotech on my own. So I founded Aristea Therapeutics back in August 2018. Awesome. Well, it certainly sounds like you've had a quite a storied career and have certainly seen the breadth of both large pharma companies and small biotechs. Maybe before we get into the heart of the discussion today, we'd love to just hear maybe a couple of quick sort of salient points about the experience you had at AZ and just maybe perhaps more broadly, how you've sort of seen larger pharma companies decide which domains to go into and which areas to perhaps transition out of. And I feel like that's something that the broader audience would love to hear maybe a framework or maybe some key discussion points that happen when thinking about that sort of business decision. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that, you know, my career at AstraZeneca just provided me with absolutely fantastic training to equip me to be able to do what I'm doing now. So the, the breadth of experience across therapy areas, across different technical functions, across different geographies, that's not something that you can get in a small organization. So that certainly um, provided a great training ground for me to do that and equip me to do what I'm doing now at Aristea Therapeutics. 
In terms of, you know, decisions in, as to strategically where Big Pharma go, I was lucky while I was there that for many years I held high-level portfolio positions, so was exposed to the senior executive team and the decision-making processes that they go through. And, you know, one of the challenges in Big Pharma normally is that there are too many opportunities and not enough money in order to develop all the opportunities. And then you get that combined with what is inevitable is that you have champions in each particular therapy area, each particular disease area, which is a very positive thing, but you need a, an overarching framework. And every year we used to do a thorough portfolio review where each of the therapy areas would present their, their plan for the next five or so years. But you would have an independent committee that would review those plans look at the overall shape of the business and make some decisions, sometimes some very tough decisions in order to focus in particular therapy areas and move out of other therapy areas. And also those decisions change over time. So if I look at the situation that we faced with our day of biosciences, AstraZeneca at the time needed to shift their focus to oncology. They needed to shift to specialty care rather than primary care. And as a result of that, they decided to exit the inflammation therapy area. And that's something that's not a static decision, because you're probably well aware that AstraZeneca has acquired Alexian recently and moved back into the inflammation immunology area. And that's not to say that it was an incorrect decision four years ago. It's just that the landscape changes and the companies change, and you have to have a framework within which to make those decisions and you know have a, a team of people who are in a sense independent of each of the therapy areas or each of the locations in order to make those right decisions. Great, James. And you know, speaking of frameworks that you have previously applied, talk us through how you decide which indications and therapeutic areas you pursue, whether it be global epidemics or rare diseases and the pros and cons of each approach. Yeah, so I think the approach is different in big pharma and small biotech. So if I think about big pharma, first of all, the focus tends to be into the larger indications. Big pharmas are very large organizations, you know, got big overheads and costs involved in running them. You know, they need a certain levels of sales um, in order to be able to make a development viable. And so the commercial component um, in a big pharma is an important aspect after you know that the science is good. The science has to underpin everything. In a small biotech, I think it's different from that. What we tend to focus on in small biotech is finding molecules that we believe work, first of all, and have utility in, in addressing diseases. And then often it's a case of searching for the disease to fit the molecule rather than the other way around. Big pharma tend to focus on the disease areas and synthesize or in licensed molecules to address those diseases. Often in a small biotech, it's the other way around. You actually identify molecules that you like the profile of, you like the mechanism of action, and then you go and search for the disease that you want to develop in. And often for small biotech, the focus is on rarer conditions because they're more focused development programs. And James, within the landscape of orphan disease development, are there any particular changes either in mindset or regulations over the last decade or so that you think are important to highlight here, given the proliferation of the number of assets that are being worked on right now in rare diseases? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Orphan Drug Act was incredibly important um, and it opened up the opportunity for small biotechs to be able to pick up, you know, these rare or orphan diseases and actually develop treatments for that in a way that would allow investors to invest in those biotechs. Because investors at the end of the day have to get a return on their investment. If they are not going to see that, then it's not going to be a viable investment and therefore you won't get the innovation. So I think, you know, it's important. There are so many rare and orphan diseases as well. And once you get involved in it, you realize, you know, how much pain and suffering these patients go through. And there's really nobody there to fight for them in many cases. In some cases, you have patient advocacy groups, but in many cases, not at all. And these diseases are often neglected. So it's very fulfilling to be able to pick up a rare disease or an orphan disease and actually develop a treatment for it and actually see a a real impact on that patient population. Yeah, it certainly is an area where I think more focus and investment, I think, is worthwhile, especially when you get to see the patients and these groups and eye to eye, right? I think it's one of the the few opportunities we have in our industry to see what the potential of our efforts, right, and labor can result. Yeah, and again, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I've worked in pharmaceutical industry for many decades now and worked with many great people. They get up in the morning and go to work because they want to help patients. And, you know, I always remember telling my teams is that, you know, one of the greatest things that you'll ever experience is when you walk into the pharmacy and you see a drug that you developed on the shelf that's actually treating patients. I remember once I was in the queue at the pharmacy and the gentleman in front of me actually handed over a script for the drug that I had developed. And that was an amazing feeling. You can see the patient there that you were able to help by developing that drug. That's what it's all about. James, on that topic, you know, there is an inherent amount of risk involved in the work that we all do, not just from a patient safety perspective, but just in terms of the low likelihood of success of any particular asset in making it out to market. I'm curious across the range and breadth of your expertise from big pharma to early stage biotech, curious if there are any lessons learned or points of advice that you can share with leaders in biotech around how to keep the team motivated despite failures that will invariably happen as you're working on meaningful therapeutics, particularly in a rare disease population? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing that I would say, and you have to really care for the people that you work with, and you have to be able to show them that, that they're valued, that their contribution is playing an important role, and that you understand that. And I think, secondly, you have to continually paint the bigger picture here and make sure that the team are aware of the risk. I mean, there are many people that I worked with in AstraZeneca over their careers that, you know, never, ever took a drug through to approval, but were incredibly good scientists who did a lot of good for innovation in in healthcare. I was lucky in that, you know, I was involved in six drug projects at AstraZeneca, all six of which got through to approval. That's an extremely unusual situation. And most people don't get that opportunity to see it all the way through. So I would just encourage people to focus on the quality of the work, doing the right thing. And if you do the right thing and the data doesn't support moving forward, then you've answered the question and that's a good outcome. And then move on to the next development. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's an interesting kind of segue into 
some of the work that you're doing at Aristea. Uh, would love to just hear a little bit about the focus of the company and some of the programs you're developing and some of the exciting milestones you're starting to pursue in 2022 and beyond. Yes, you're happy to. So Aristea Therapeutics is a clinical stage immunology focused drug development company. We founded the company back in August 2018. We raised $15 million from Novo Ventures. They were the sole investor in our Series A. And we licensed CXCR2 antagonist, RIST4721, from AstraZeneca. That was a molecule that I was very familiar with from my time at AstraZeneca, had been developed for respiratory indications and for strategic reasons that we talked about earlier. That program had actually been terminated a number of years beforehand. Nothing to do with any issue with the molecules, just was not the right strategic fit for the company. I'd always liked the molecule, knew that it worked. So kept an eye on it. And when we uh, had the opportunity to set up Aristea Therapeutics, reached out to AstraZeneca and licensed that molecule. And that was a typical example for me of a molecule where we knew that the molecule did what it was meant to do. It actually stops neutrophils trafficking from the bone marrow to the site of inflammation. And what we needed to do was to find the disease to treat. And we actually went back to the basic science, went searching for neutrophil-mediated diseases identified neutrophilic dermatoses as a group of diseases, and then narrowed that down to a rare inflammatory skin condition called palmoplantar pustulosis, or PPP, where patients get sterile neutrophil-filled pustules on the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet. Incredibly debilitating condition, both from a stigma perspective, if they have it on their hands, it's also extremely painful and debilitating. Often if patients have it on their feet, they can't walk. No proof treatments in the US or Europe. And so a great opportunity to you know, have an impact on a really recalcitrant disease that was causing a lot of pain and suffering. We completed a phase 2A proof of concept study, saw some nice activity of the molecule, particularly in patients that were actively flaring. And we're now moving forward into a phase 2B dose ranging study in PPP. And we're also expanding into two other indications, which are both neutrophil-mediated diseases, familial Mediterranean fever, which is an orphan disease in the U.S., and Bechet's disease, which is also an orphan disease in the U.S. So utility of a, a molecule across multiple therapy areas and multiple diseases. And James, you're quite active in the San Diego life sciences ecosystem. For those of us that are unfamiliar with that environment, you know, just talk to us about what that environment is like, what hiring is like, and then also how that's changed over the last several years. Before I arrived in San Diego, I knew nothing about the innovation ecosystem here. All I knew was the conference center that I'd been to several times and really not seen or exposed to anything else. When I arrived here, I, I was immediately pretty amazed by the innovation ecosystem, both from a tech and a life science perspective. So first of all, we have amazing research institutions and universities that create a great academic network here. And then biotech in San Diego is incredibly buoyant. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of biotech companies here. And across both tech and life science, this year, San Diego companies are going to raise over $8 billion of venture money, which is incredible amounts of money to come in. What I think separates San Diego from the other life science innovation ecosystems is I've never come across such a collaborative community. So the minute that I arrived here, people were welcoming. They wanted to help. 
even competitors in your space will help you because they want to see San Diego companies succeed. And I've been heavily involved in Biocom, which is the industry group here in San Diego, now servicing all of California. And I've been involved with Connect, which is a, an innovation accelerator for the last seven or eight years. I'm now chairman of the board of Connect. So that organization is there to really help founders and entrepreneurs get their business cases built, get out there, get the companies funded and, and move them into growth funding. So it's an incredible place to both live and work. And as a continuation of that topic, you know, work has fundamentally changed and how we get work done has fundamentally changed as a result of the pandemic. And if we focus on the positive here, curious to hear your thoughts on perhaps what are some of the silver linings as a result of the pandemic and what are perhaps innovations or changes across the industry that you hope long survive once we're on the other side of COVID? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right, although there's obviously been a downside to experiencing what we've experienced over the last two years. I think there are some positives that have come out of that. I guess the first thing is that the technology has been great and has allowed us to work remotely. And I think it's also showed people that working remotely is possible in actually quite an efficient and effective manner. And, you know, to give you an example of that, and back in July, we closed our Series B financing which was a $63 million round led by Fidelity with, you know, other great investors in there, such as Novo Ventures, uh, Tecla Capital and Arena Pharmaceuticals. And we did not have one face-to-face -face meeting when we raised that money. It was all done remotely. We also, back in July, did a collaboration and option to acquire a deal with Arena Pharmaceuticals. That's another pharmaceutical company, a public company here in San Diego. And again, we did not have a single face-to-face -face meeting. And we were able to you know, close that Series B and close the Arena deal. I think the other thing that I would say on the more human side that's been positive is I think it's made us all much more tolerant. So no one worries too much these days about barking dogs or someone cutting the grass outside, just waiting to see if my dog will bark now on command. And one of the one of the nicest experiences that we had when we were raising money is we were pitching to an investor and we were in the middle of the pitch and the door opened behind him and his little son, who was probably two or three years old, came in, said, Daddy, will you read me a story? So he put him up on his knee and we all sat and waited and he read him a couple of pages of the book and his little boy said, thank you very much, daddy. And then he walked out the door. It was a really nice moment. And I think the other thing that's positive about it as well is we used to jump on a plane and fly six hours across the US to go and meet an investor on the other side of the country for a one hour meeting. That's never going to happen again. People are just simply not going to do it, either from the investor side or from the company side. And that's a good thing. Certainly seems like I think people have now come to appreciate the human side of working with each other. And you get this really unexpected visual window into other people's lives, right? Wherever they work and where they live rather and you know, where they eat. And so I think there is something oddly human, right, about the experience now. The Connect organization that I work for, we had an executive committee meeting a couple of weeks ago, and there's about 15 of us on Zoom. And one of the committee members appeared with her two-week-old baby, and none of us knew she was pregnant through the whole period, because all we ever saw was from her head up. And then when she appeared with her baby, two other people went and got their babies as well, and then the cats and the dogs came in. So the human <laughs> side of it is great. That's awesome. One of the things I'm kind of curious about, given the range of your background, 
is how you think about this transition from bigger pharmaceutical company to emerging biotech. And one could argue you transitioned polar opposites. AstraZeneca, very, very large, successful pharmaceutical company to being a founder right, of a biotech without a big team. Kind of curious, what would be some best practices you could share for other men and women who are thinking about transitioning in that same way from bigger company to smaller one? I guess the first thing I would say is as you approach that process, your training in the big company will be absolutely invaluable. So the exposure that you've had to different therapy areas, different functions, multitude of different people and projects will serve you well. As you move from big pharma to biotech, particularly if you're founding an organization, what you realize is that every single thing that you do in founding that organization, you've never done before. It's important to utilize your networks, talk to people who've done it before, you know, hear the positive experiences they had, the areas where they had challenges, and keep being inquisitive because one of the risks as you move from big pharma into biotech is in big pharma, of course, you have large teams of people and even groups of people that sometimes you never even see who do all the stuff in the background that makes the clinical trials operate. And then what you realize when you go into the biotech is suddenly you have to do all that. To give you one example, you know, when we set up Aristea Therapeutics, we obviously had to get clinical trial insurance. We'd never purchased clinical trial insurance ever before, even though I'd been involved in dozens and dozens of clinical trials and programs. And just going through that whole process of, you know, how do you purchase the insurance for the organization? How do you buy the licenses that allow you to, you know, use the safety databases and so on? Those are all things that you've likely never done before. Probably the most important thing is to try and make sure that you realize there are going to be lots of things that you don't know and that you need to constantly be asking people for areas that you could potentially trip up on or areas that you should be aware of. But certainly, you know, from my perspective, founding a biotech has been a very, very rewarding experience. And you have a real direct impact every minute of every day on what you're trying to achieve. And James, for our budding entrepreneurs and perhaps our, our younger listeners, as you reflect on your career and the you know, varied experiences you've had in this industry, what's one piece of advice you would provide your younger self knowing what you now know? I think the two bits of advice, one is, and I mentioned it before, is you have to really care about people that you work with. You have to get to the human side. And in that way, you get the most out of people and you're able to create the best environment for them to function in. The second thing for you know me personally, that I would say is don't try and over plan your career. Try and keep an open mind. Look at opportunities as they come along. If they're outside your comfort zone, become even more inquisitive about them. And I tended to use a couple of things that would challenge me as to whether something was worthwhile moving into is one, would it challenge me as a person? And secondly, would I be able to add value? And those were the two criteria that I used to make every single move in my career. And if I look at you know my career from growing up in the northeast of Scotland to being a founder and CEO of a biotech here in San Diego, 
you could never have plotted out that career. And had I tried to plot it out, you would probably never have have gone there because you would have made some wrong decisions along the way. So I would just say to people, just keep an open mind. And if you see an opportunity and it feels like it's the right opportunity, then just go for it. Wonderful advice, James. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing a bit about your background and the important work that you and your colleagues are now pursuing at Aristea. Wishing you continued success and and look forward to having you back on in the future. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.